Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. The Super Bowl is one of the most watched sporting events, not just in the United States of America, but in the entire world. The majority, the vast majority of Americans gather together on that Sunday evening in February, and there they are watching the big screen from the National Football League. Now, most people would watch the game for the football, but there are many people who would watch the the football game for the commercials and for the halftime show. Did you know up until the 1990s, the halftime show was not really taken seriously. It was actually a time when it would just be an intermission period where people would go and use that time as an excuse to go get some more grub from the refreshment stands or to go and take a load off in the restroom. But in 1990, the 1990s opened up a doorway where these people would come in and they saw a vision and they saw an opportunity to make more money. To use the halftime show as as another means of gathering attention all over the world. And uh, they would gather different artists to come and perform music between the first and second half. And I found it interesting that That from a musician and artist perspective, these people would showcase their talents. And and that is literally one of the most esteemed venues for a musician to play at. Only two artists, a female artist and a male artist, have performed at the Super Bowl three times. The male artist is... Justin Timberlake. Once he performed with, the, with his pop band and then two times as a solo artist. But his last performance was in 2018. And in his performance, if you watch the performance, you notice that, that he went off the stage and he went into the stands and into the stadium and began to walk up the steps and he got to this one little 13-year-old boy and this little 13-year-old boy t- took an opportunity and grabbed a selfie and stole the show of halftime which later landed that young 13-year-old on Good Morning America telling his story. Well, I share that to say this. In chapters 10 and 11, this is kind of halftime. This is the intermission period, at least specifically right here with these trumpets. But honestly, it is about the halfway point of the book of Revelation. And God bless you for making it this far in the book of Revelation. But today, as we come to this scene, we see that God, in a sense, is giving us an intermission period. In chapter 10, he's given us an intermission period with John. I mean, just think about all that John just observed in chapter 9. These demonic forces invading this world and destroying this world. And so far, John has been John has been given some heavy, heavy, heavy stuff from God. And now God says, hey, it's an intermission period. It's time to take a break. And so in chapter 10, we see the mighty angel comes down with a little scroll. In chapter 11, we see two witnesses come on the scene and declare the message of the gospel to the world. And today, I want to share with you from chapter 10 
these three words, or actually not just these three words, but this thought. God's halftime show is the greatest show. God's halftime show is the greatest show. If you think that the artist such as Justin Timberlake puts on a good show, if you think that some of the other musicians who have come on the scene to perform at the Super Bowl has put on a good show, you haven't read chapter 10 of the book of Revelation because what you have here is a strong, mighty angel coming down and seven thunders being thundered in the universe and a little scroll that is handed to John the Apostle and John the Apostle eats the book. Talk about a halftime show. <laughs> One theologian summarized this chapter by saying, The sounding of the seventh trumpet will bring about the full completion of God's judgment plan, and his word is both sweet and bitter to those for whom he gives it. As we think about Revelation chapter 10 and about God's halftime show and how his show is the greatest show, I want to share a sermon statement with you that if I could summarize everything that I want to relate to you today, and if you leave this place with any thought, here's what I want you to walk away with. God's halftime show reminds us nothing in this universe compares to the truth of his word. God's halftime show reminds us nothing in this universe compares to the truth of God's word. Listen, as, as you, as you have, might have studied chapter 10, as we're going to today, the emphasis, my friend, is not just on this strong, mighty angel, not just on these seven thunders that are being thundered, not just this little scroll, and not just the apostle John eating the scroll, but I believe today God Almighty is taking an intermission period break in the book of Revelation to just pause and reflect on the thought that his word is the greatest word and nothing compares in this universe to it. And so my question I want to ask and answer today is this. What does this intermission teach us about God's word? The book that you're holding in your hand is literally the greatest book that was ever coined and penned by mankind. And the reason why is because the book that you're holding in your hand is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, preserved text of Scripture. It is God's word. It is the word that God has revealed to you and to me so that we can study theology, so that we can understand what it means to be God, and so that we can understand what it means to live a life after God. This book that we're holding uh, unpacks the reality that God's word reveals to us what's going to happen after we die, heaven or hell. And in this particular case, we see that God's word can be sweet to the soul, but it can also be bitter to the soul. And so today I want to walk through this passage and share, share with you three lessons about God's word from Revelation chapter 10. In verses 1 through 4, the first lesson is this. The word of God is the highest authority. The word of God is the highest authority. Obviously, living in America, the last year and a half, we have questioned what is the highest authority in this nation. The question is, is the president the highest authority? Is the Constitution the highest authority? Are the people the highest authority? What exactly is the highest authority? 
Now, I say that to say this. The highest authority in all the universe is not the Constitution of America. It is not the Bill of Rights. It is not the Constitution and bylaws of Clearbrook Baptist Church. The highest authority in the world is God and His Word. And today we see that being thundered down in verses 1 through 4. Look at verse number 1. Remember, the Word of God is the highest authority. That's the first lesson from these first four verses. But verse number one teaches us this. God's authoritative Word is mercifully comprehensible. God's authoritative Word is mercifully comprehensible. Look here in verse number one. It's interesting here. We see a lot of events going on in the book of Revelation. But here in this verse, we see that God is giving us His Word in such a way that we can understand it. But it says this, it says that John sees another mighty angel. Now let's pause right here. Who exactly is this angel? Some commentators would argue that this is Jesus Christ, but I would actually argue that it is not Jesus Christ because if it was, then we would have to believe in the three or the two second comings. We'd have to believe in three comings. The first one when Jesus came being wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, and then here it would be a, a second coming, and then later on in the book of Revelation would be a third coming. And in fact, the angel begins to swear by Almighty God, so it doesn't make sense for this angel to be Jesus. Some have tried to argue that it is Gabriel or Michael, and it very well could be. And if this is Gabriel, we know that, th that Gabriel visited Daniel in the prophet Daniel's writings in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, that Gabriel visits uh, Zacharias in Luke's gospel, and he visits Mary. And then if this is Gabriel, this would be Gabriel's final visitation to an earthly being. But truth be told, we have no idea who this angel is, but what we do know is this is a strong angel. Jewish tradition tells us there are seven archangels, and biblically speaking, that is the, the Old Testament, New Testament canon. We understand that there's two archangels mentioned, Gabriel and Michael, so it could be one of them, and who knows, maybe it's not. It, but nonetheless, it is a mighty, strong angel who is coming down from heaven. So now, so far, we've seen that John was taken up to heaven, but now it seems that he is, he is kind of back down and looking on the earth and in the earth and watching this angel come down. Notice here, similarities in verse number one with the Old Testament. We read in the wilderness journey that, that the cloud led them and the fire led them. And here it speaks about this cloud, this clothing of a cloud with this angel. It speaks about this rainbow that was upon his head. And remember earlier in chapter 4 and 5, we read about this, this emerald greenish rainbow that was surrounding the throne of God. And now we see this, this emerald rainbow, a very similar rainbow here, as the one that was seen on God's throne is now hovering upon the angel's head like a halo. And I want to just pause and say this, that no matter what society says about a rainbow, the rainbow will always be God's covenant promise that he will not destroy this world with a worldwide flood again. Doesn't matter what anybody says. That's what God's word teaches us. And if somebody doesn't hold the same position as that with the rainbow, then we are to be gracious and merciful and loving and compassionate towards them and lift them up in prayer and share Jesus Christ with them. But then it goes on to say that his face was as it were the sun and his feet pillars of fire. So because the description is so similar to John's vision in Revelation chapter 1, some try to say that this is Jesus, but it just doesn't make sense for it to be him. Because 
throughout the apocalypse, Jesus is never identified as an angel. There are certainly times in the Old Testament when the Bible says the angel of the Lord is a Christophany or a Theophany, a bodily manifestation of Jesus Christ before he was born of a virgin. And so it is in the Old Testament that way, but not in the book of Revelation. In fact, he is called a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the son of man, the first and last, the living one, the son of God. He who is holy, he who is true, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the lion that was from the tribe of Judah, the root and offspring of David, the lamb, faithful and true, the word of God, king of kings, lord of lords. And it is very reasonable to assume that if this was Jesus Christ, it would clearly say that. So God's authoritative word is mercifully comprehensible. God has given to us his word, and we can understand it the way it's written, especially with prayer and illumination of the Holy Spirit. But verse number two, three, teaches us this thought. God's authoritative word is miraculously all-powerful. Not just mercifully comprehensible, but it is miraculously all-powerful. We see that this strong and mighty angel comes down to this earth and he is so strong. And look at verse number two. The Bible says that he had in his hand a little book open and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Could you just imagine how large and how big and how ginormous this angelic being was that John is seeing? He sets his right foot on the sea, or he sets one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. That's a big boy. <laughs> That's a big boy. And then he cries with a loud voice as a lion that roars. I found it interesting that one, one theologian said this, this term lion roaring goes back to a cow mooing. <laughs> I grew up in Boonsville, Virginia, right across from a cow farm, and every morning I had to see those ugly, nasty cows mooing across the road on Bethlehem Road. A lion is an animal that is totally gifted by God in such a way that when it roars, its prey is stunned in fear. And so here this mighty angel roars and places his foot on the sea and on the earth. And then John hears seven thunders shout their voices. In other words, he hears these thunders crack. Now, as we come to this passage right here, as we see this mighty angel, as we see these seven thunders thunder, all what this does is remind us of the omnipotent, all-powerful God. So why does this angelic being resemble an identification similar to Jesus Christ? Well, just like Moses did when he was up on the mountain, he came back down glowing. And when we get into the presence of God and in the throne room of God and we leave that place, we will shine with the beams similar to God. And so when you get into your closet and you study God's word and you're around God's people and you're being sharpened by the people and the word of God, I submit to you today that you will shine the light of the gospel in this world. Now, there are some people that are going to try to say that, that these seven thunders goes back to Psalm 29, speaking about all these different things. And, and it could very well be but all we know is this is revealing to us that God is so powerful, it is miraculous to observe. Remember that God's word is the one that brings salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Apart from God's all-powerful, omnipotent word, we cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then look at verse number four. It says, when these seven thunders had uttered their voices, the Bible says that John was about to write down what he heard. But then he hears a voice, probably the audible voice of God. And it says, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Remember back in the book of Daniel, Daniel in chapter 12, the Bible speaks about how he was to not to, to seal it up. And then earlier in the book of, of Revelation, the Bible says to not seal up this book, not to close it up and not to, not to, to, to not hold it back, but to let it loose. And then we, we read about in Corinthians where, where Paul was caught up to a third heaven and there he, 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 he saw things that he could not utter. So what exactly are these seven thunders? We don't know. And I want you to understand this, that God's authoritative word is mysteriously supernatural. It's not just mercifully comprehensible. It's not just miraculously all-powerful, but it is mysteriously supernatural. It is okay not to know everything about God's word. Let me say that again. It is okay not to know everything about God's word. Now, I might, 10 years ago, might have tried to knock my lights out by saying that because I thought I knew everything about Scripture. But the more I study Scripture, the more I realize we don't know everything about God's Word. And God only allows us to know what He wants us to know. And it's only revealed us of what He wants us to know in His Word. And so here is a place about these seven thunders that truth be told, nobody knows what these were. Some people have tried to speculate that, that it is possible that John was, was about to write down seven more judgments that God was going to thunder down. And maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But what we do know is there's something special about how amazing God is and how he was so sovereign in our lives, and that, that he gives us the ability to understand what he wants us to understand. In, in theology, we have, this, we have this term, it's called progressive revelation. And as throughout time, God reveals himself to mankind in a greater way to illuminate our understanding about God's word. And the closer we get to the second coming of Christ, I believe the greater our illumination and understanding of scripture should be. So God's word is the highest authority. But now check out verses 5, 6, and 7. So what does this intermission period in Revelation 10 teach us about God's word? Well, first of all, the word of God is the highest authority. But second of all, from verses 5 through 7, the word of God is the surest certainty. The word of God is the surest certainty. Remember, God's halftime show reminds us nothing in this universe compares to the truth of his word. God's word is sure and certain, and I'm thankful for that. In other words, the surest certainty of God's word reveals to us that God's word is fully anchored and settled in heaven, and he has given us what he wants us to know about him right here in the completed, confirmed canon of Scripture. Look at verse 5. 
The Bible says, and the angel which I saw. John says, I saw this angel standing upon this sea and upon the earth. And the Bible says, lifted up his hand to heaven. Can you imagine? This angel is about to lift up his hand to heaven and a way of worship and present an oath about the promise of God in verse 6. But as we read verse number 5, here's what I want you to understand. God's certain word can be trusted with confirmation. God's certain word can be trusted with confirmation. You see, God has given, I don't want to bore you today with all the, 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 the historical facts about scripture and about the process of where God raised up 40 men on three different continents over the space of 1600 years and, and how he gave them their words. And it's when they wrote down those words in that exact moment, those words, when they are penned for the very first time, were breathed in life by God and they were inspired and inerrant without error. And then how God throughout the ages has raised up scribes to, to, to meticulously copy and write down those ancient manuscripts so that now today we can have this word in our language translated faithfully right here in this book. And how that God has confirmed his truth to us right here. And so I don't have to go read any other book to realize that this book is the confirmed truth of God. There's been a lot of, of, of books about the Bible, but those books about the Bible can help us understand the Bible, but those books about the Bible are not the Bible. And when you read a commentary or you listen to a preacher or you watch some television show about Scripture, realize that it's a fallible man presenting the infallible truth of God. And that there are times when I might say something that is in error, or somebody else might write something that is in error, but God's word is true and it's confirmed. And we see that in here in verse number five, that, that in a sense, this chapter is kind of answering those prayers that, that throughout the ages, you know, back in the days of Christ, they're saying, hey, where's the promise of, of or what are gonna be the signs of your coming? And then the skeptics are saying, what is the promise of your coming? And then earlier in, in the seals with 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 seal number five, those, those martyred saints are, are asking God, when are you going to avenge our death and our martyrdom? And now we see that God is about to do this because we have this angel here holding this scroll, and we don't know exactly what this scroll is. It doesn't seem to be the exact scroll that's in chapters four and five, the title deed of the earth, but it does, in a sense, resemble that title deed. And we see that this angel is holding this little scroll, making his feet down on this earth on the request of God to declare to the world that God is about to take ownership again over his world that he created. And so God has confirmed this, and this is going to happen. But now look at verse 6. God's certain word cannot just be trusted with confirmation, but I like this. This is the final book of the Bible going back to affirm the first book of the Bible. Verse number six says, and swear. Now, let's pause right here. Obviously, uh, James and, uh, tells us not to swear by anything. So what exactly does this mean here? I like what John MacArthur said. He said, the Bible does not forbid taking of vows, but rather the evasive swearing of oaths with the intent to deceive as the scribes and Pharisees did in the days of Christ. I think we need to be careful when we are 
saying, I will do this and I will do that. Let's be cautious about the vows we take. But here we see this is an angelic being making an oath by him that lives forever. That's the eternal God. The God who always has been, the God who always is, the God who always will be. The God who never had a beginning and the God who never had an ending. The God who is. The God who said, I am, present tense. And then it says, check it out, I love this. It says, who created. Would you say created with me? Created. Say it again. Created. One more time. Created. Man, this is powerful. The final book of the Bible is revealing to us and affirming the writing of Moses back in Genesis that God is the source of creation and the one who brought the creation into being. It says who created heaven and the things that therein are. So he is the one who created where God's throne is. He is the one who created the heavens of the outer space and the universe and the heavens right here where the birds fly. And then it says, and the earth. So the place that you and I are standing on, this is God's creation that he made. And the things that are therein are. So you, me, the animals, the fish, the fowls, everything God created. And then it says, looking into the sea, everything that's therein. God is affirming to us that his word can be trusted with creation. God's certain word can be trusted with creation. Jesus spoke about creation. The New Testament writers spoke about the doctrine of creation. And here we see that throughout all of Scripture, the Bible says that God created the world in six little days. In fact, that is what Moses wrote down, or excuse me, that what Moses brought from Mount Sinai that God wrote with his own finger on a tablet of stone that he created everything in six days and then rested on the seventh. If God wanted to use the process of Darwinian evolution then he would have said that in his word. If God wanted to use the process of uh, the, the day-age theory, where these periods, these days in Genesis are just millions and billions of years, then he would have said that in his word. And in fact, when you go and you study the word in the book of Genesis chapter 1, it literally means a 24-hour day. You say, how do you know that? Well, because actually, if you had never read Genesis chapter 1, it says, and the evening and the morning or day one, or day two. So that means the first 12 hours and the second 12 hours. We can trust God's word. And let me just share this with you. Right here, we're being reminded in Revelation, the final book of the Bible, that if you don't trust the first book of the Bible, you won't believe this, the last book. That is, if you don't believe the miracle of creation, that God spoke the world into the universe, and by the way, I know I've said it before, but universe means a single spoken sentence, and God did that many, many years ago. And so here we see that in this place right here, that he is affirming to us that, hey, if you can't believe the first book, you won't believe the last book. If you can't believe the first book, you won't believe John's other book, the gospel, and about how it reveals to us the truth of Jesus Christ, how he lived his sinless life, and he rose victoriously from the grave after he was crucified on the cross. But then check it out now. It says that there should be time no longer. Now this old English Bible right here that we're holding, sometimes 
is hard to understand in a contemporary society. And so just by a simple glance, you might, I, I thought that this phrase, that there should be time no longer, meant that in this moment, God is going to get rid of all time. But actually, that's not exactly what this means. This means that time will no longer delay of God getting ownership back from this world. And it will come to pass. God is the creator of the world. Therefore, God can redeem the world and take it back underneath his control. Now look at verse Number seven, it says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. God's word can be trusted with not just creation and confirmation. God's certain word can be trusted with completion. God is going to complete his word. We were talking about this progressive revelation idea. And there are certain things that are mysteries in scripture that we just don't know. One theologian said mysteries hidden in the past that the New Testament reveals include the mysteries of the kingdom in Matthew 13. The mystery of Israel's blindness in Romans chapter 11. The mystery of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. The mystery of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The mystery of Christ in Ephesians chapter 4. And of Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5. The mystery of Christ and the believer in Colossians chapter 1. And the mystery of the incarnation in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Another theologian went on to say the mystery of God of which the angel spoke is that of the summing of all the things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. It is the consummation of God's plan in bringing his glorious kingdom and Christ to fulfillment. God's will will come to pass. So far we've seen in our passage that this is God's halftime show. We've seen, so far we've seen the mighty angel. We've seen this little scroll that he's holding and, and then we've seen these seven thunders thunder, but now we're gonna see a transition and the focus is, is now it's interesting here. Throughout the book of Revelation, you see John is just the spectator, but now John is the participant in verses eight, nine, 10, and 11. God's halftime show reminds us nothing in this universe compares to the truth of his word. The word of God is the highest authority the word of God is the surest certainty. But now let me share this with you. Thirdly and finally from verses 8 through 11. The word of God is the greatest reality. The word of God is the greatest reality. Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. As I read verse number eight, and listen, I know today is Father's Day, and I'm getting to the Father's Day message right here. Here's what I want you to understand. As we look at verse eight, nine, 10, and 11, it is important that we visualize God's word, internalize God's word, and mobilize God's word. So as we look at John right here in verse number eight, obviously it is, it is certain that this scroll is a resemblance of the word of God. And so there he takes the word of God and he, and he begins to look upon it. And I want you to understand this, that, that we need men. 
We need men to lead the way by visualizing the reality of God's word and opening up and reading it for themselves. Listen, if you're a father today and, and you want your children to read scripture, they need to see you read scripture. If you're a husband today and you want your family, your wife, and, and everybody in your household to read God's word, they need to see you reading God's word. Visualize it. But now check it out now. Look at verse number 9 and 10. Here's where it gets interesting. Here's where the show becomes a show. <laughs> the Bible says that he went to the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And so the Bible says here in verse number 10 that John takes this little book out of the angel's hand and he eats it. And the Bible says that when, it, when this book was in his mouth, it was sweet as honey. Have you ever had honey before? It tastes so good. Just don't eat too much of it because the Bible says in Proverbs that it will make you sick. It's so good. When, we were, when, when, when I am you know, just trying to have a light lunch, I will grab a... Um, uh, a peanut butter and honey sandwich or a banana and honey sandwich. I mean, it is so good because it's sweet. But then, then as John is, is taking this book and placing it in his mouth and he's eating it, it's so weird. I mean, can you imagine eating a book? <laughs> That's what y'all are going to eat for Father's Day lunch, right? You're going to go into the library and eat books. <laughs> no, no, no. It says, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. So in his mouth it was sweet, but by the time it went down into his being, it was bitter. This reminds us of Ezekiel in chapter 2 and 3 of, of, of the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel was commanded by God to eat a book as well. Here this angel commands John on behalf of God. And it's interesting. The point here I believe that we need to understand is to internalize God's word. That is not just visualize it and read it, but then internalize it. Make, that is that we're going to digest it and we're going to allow it to sink in to be a part of our being, to be a part of our DNA. And in fact, in Psalm 19, verse number 10, the Bible likens God's word to honey being sweet. But here the Bible says that God's word, in a sense, is bitter and sweet. How is it sweet? Listen, it is sweet because it reveals to us the truth of salvation. It, it reveals us the good news that Jesus came to save us and ransom us from our sins. And that you can be redeemed by the power of God in Christ. But it is bitter because it reveals to us the reality that for all those who do not accept God's salvation, they will reap his condemnation. And that is bitter to the soul of man and the mind of man. We need men of God today. We need godly fathers and godly men to internalize the word of God so they are living it out every single day. And then check it out now, the very last verse. This angel says to John, that he has to prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And so here's the final thought about this section. Mobilize the reality of God's 
word. Mobilize the reality of God's word. I realize I am a pastor. I realize that I, years ago, I dedicated my life to Jesus Christ in such a way that I wanted to spend the rest of my day, I want to spend every single day devoted to fulfilling the Great Commission. But I want you to understand this, that whether you're called to the office of a pastor or not, that is the call of a Christian. That is, no matter if you work in a secular field or you're on staff at a church like me, we are all called to daily give our lives to the cause of the Great Commission. And here the Bible says that, that John has to prophesy, and it speaks about John here being literally this is John's final prophet from the standpoint of writing God's word down and delivering it to the people. Now this does bring up the question, what extent is he a prophet and are prophets today? And long story short, the word prophet here in this passage, it literally means somebody who is declaring divine truth. And so in the Old Testament sense, that is before the, the, the scriptures were canonized, I believe, and, and before, before we have now what we have, I believe that God raised up prophets like Jeremiah and like Daniel and Isaiah, and God gave them words and spoke to them in such a way that they went and shared those words. And they, at times, were just telling people about God and warning them of his judgment to come, but they were also at times predicting the future. Of course, the New Testament speaks of prophets, but I believe that in our perspective, now looking back through the cross, we are pointing people to the message of the cross, we are lifting high God's word, and we are telling the future only when God's word is telling the future. So the next time somebody comes to you and says that, hey, I have seen a vision of God, most likely it is not true. Because God has given us the visions he's won us to have. Now, can God speak through a dream? Yes, he can. But he's not going to speak through a dream like he did with Daniel and the others many years ago today because he has given us his entire word. The word of God is the greatest reality. It is so true. And we are called, just like John, to proclaim the truth of the rest of the book of Revelation here that he will do. We are called to go out into this world and we are called to share the world that Jesus has come and he saves. And men, my brothers, if you do not lead the way, who will go? When Jesus came to the earth, there were 12 individuals that he brought underneath his wing. And you know who they were? They were 12 men. God, in a sense, he can use women. Yes, he can. But God has a special call for men to lead the way in fulfilling the Great Commission. This past January, I was flying back from one of my classes in Los Angeles, and I was stuck in Orlando at the airport. And in fact, when I landed from LAX to Orlando, I got there in Orlando, and I turned my phone back on off airplane mode, and, and I got this notification from Expedia.com that my flight has been canceled. And there was a delay. And the delay was going to cause me to miss my flight. There was a tower that went out, and the people could no longer give directions and instructions to the pilots in the air. So <laughs> that's a bad day. So they wouldn't allow anybody to go up in the air. So I finally found a lady at a desk, and I got my flight rearranged. And there I was, three hours later, sweating that I was going to miss this other flight to go to Atlanta, which would then take me 
here to Roanoke. And so that flight from Orlando to Atlanta was delayed longer. And I got on the plane, and we finally took off, and, and I get to my place in Atlanta, and I'm telling you, as soon as I got there, it wasn't just a couple minutes later, they opened up that gate to board. It was a delay that we experience. And I share that to say this, that this passage reveals to us today that God's word will one day delay no longer. His coming and his return will delay no longer. One commentator, I close with this quote. From a human point of view, the return of Christ is the most delayed promise ever. That which was soon in the first century still hasn't happened. When will the scenario finally unfold? This chapter of Revelation cannot answer that question, but it does clarify one important part of the answer. Once the seventh judgment angel sounds his trumpet, everything will move very quickly. The mystery of God will be accomplished we will have no more delay. My friends, God's halftime show is the greatest show because it reveals to us and reminds us that nothing in this universe compares to the truth of his word. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.